It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornstein. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornstein. I'm a senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm thrilled that you're tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed last week's broadcast. We were talking about the tree of life as the scriptures seem to be bookended with this discussion, the tree of life there at the garden, the tree of life that will be at the eternal kingdom and everything in the middle. What a powerful, beautiful story as we've been studying eschatology. It's now led to this dialogue that we're going to have today as we look at the afterlife. And this is a series of questions that Dr. Steve Ford presented to me. And so to help me with this discussion, Dr. Steve Ford, welcome back to Engage in Truth. Uh, Thank you, John. Once again, it's always great to be here. And that was a wonderful discussion last week. I would definitely urge anybody, if they missed last week's show, Uh, I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I know that I I learned a ton. I got a lot out of it. So I just want to. I think they had to speed it up a little bit because it it sounded like it was almost like a fire hose of information. (laughs) So you got to listen to it multiple times, I think. And you can go to calvaryfountain.com to do that. Listen to it again and again. Share it with your friends. Get the word out. I mean, we we need to know this powerful truth as it bookends scripture. So, and then you sent me these questions for today. And I was like, I think that might be a couple shows. I'm not sure. Right. We'll see. Get through this. Yeah. But thank you. You're always so inquisitive and, uh, wonderful questions. Yeah, we'd been discussing eschatology. And with that, we come across several terms regarding the afterlife. And I wanted to see if you'd help us tease out the distinction between Mm. some of these terms and what their implications are. Uh, One of the ones that I was interested in was paradise. Mm. And exactly what is paradise? If you could just sort of kind of define what what point in the afterlife are we talking about when we're talking about paradise? Yeah, well, okay, that leads to, I think, a wonderful discussion as we look at paradise is we look at the alternative to paradise. But I think part of the discussion on paradise, and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead of some of the questions I know you had for me, but as we look at uh, really what Paul talked about as he was talking about being caught up in paradise, can I read that for us? Second uh, Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 4, it says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, uh, Paul had received many visions in his life. I mean, six of those are recorded in the book of Acts. You start in Acts chapter 9 and uh, chapter 16, 18, 22, 23, amongst many others. And he had received the gospel that he preached by revelation, according to Galatians chapter 1, verses 11, 12. And, and with this, I believe this this uh, cloak of humility, I mean, he had such a humble nature about him, this character about him. I believe, in my humble opinion, that that was the Apostle Paul that he's talking about. Uh, because verse 7 seems to indicate that. And this would be 14 years before he even wrote Second Corinthians, which was uh, around the late A.D. 55 or 56, and then that would be putting Paul somewhere between his return to Tarsus from Jerusalem around Acts chapter 9 and his commissioning by the Holy Spirit. So having been given this glimpse of heaven that awaited him, he could then face, I believe, this encouragement that would be given to him by God to face the most relentless and severe suffering 
that would plague him, that would that would come against him almost every day of his life. I mean, you would need some incredible encouragement, I suspect. I mean, every time I get somebody say something negative or right. not come back to church, I mean, it just discourages me so much. Right. And I'm like, I'm just a, a wimp yep. compared to Paul. I, I mean, this guy mean. went through so much. Yeah, and he calls them light and momentary troubles, the right? multiple beatings, the canings, <laughs> the know. shipwrecks, you know, all those things. But these are light and momentary, right. you know, it's part of the, the job. Troubles. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, somebody said something mean to me, Lord. I, I'm pouting now. Right. You know? <laughs> it's, it's like totally not the same thing. But he talks about being caught up, and it translates that word as the harpasso. You know, that's the same verb that we get uh, for the word rapture from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And, and so it says that Paul was suddenly snatched up into the third heaven, which is what we let me just break that down. We've got the first heaven, which would be called today the Earth's atmosphere. Right. Right at Deuteronomy chapter 11, 1 Kings 8, Isaiah 55, 10. Then we have scripture giving this idea of the second heaven, which is what we call the place where the interstellar space, right? The planets, the stars, all of that are in that space. Genesis 15, 5, Psalm 8, 3, Isaiah 13, 10. And then we have this place called the third heaven, which is the abode of God. And this is where the term paradise comes in to be equated with heaven. And we see that 1 Kings 8, Psalm 33, Matthew 6, even in Luke 23, 43. So I find it very interesting when you do a word study on paradise, it's derived from the meaning of a walled garden. And here just last week, we talked about the tree of life, right? right? And the place of the garden where God walked. And then we have the tree of life at the very end and this place where God is. It was a, the greatest honor when a Persian king would invite somebody to come and walk with him in his royal garden, that that expressed this intimate companionship where the guard is down, right? Now you're walking with me in my favorite place. Right. And, and that's the image that's given to us there. And then Paul talks about this inexpressible words that he just can't find the words nor even use the words to describe the indescribable in this place, this place of heaven where God was, where he wanted him to see. And I believe that anything that's being revealed to us by way of scripture is sufficient because there's so much that we can't even imagine. I think we struggle with the idea of, will there be even be oceans? There's no seas in this new heaven and earth. And then you just go, well, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, according to Deuteronomy 29, 29. And I think that, you know, with Paul, when he talked about that, it's not about the visions, right? We often really give credence to men when their visions are outlandish. And he could have gone on and on about what he had seen, but he rather puts on this cloak of humility and puts all glory back on God instead of any attention upon himself, because a true man of God is marked by how much he has suffered in the war against the kingdom of darkness, how concerned he is for people, and how humble he is, and ultimately how accurately he handles the supernatural revelation that's found in God's word, according to 2 Timothy 2.15. So, I, I think that there is this patience where you talked about that 2 Corinthians 4.17, momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Right. I mean, what a posture of humility. So yeah. I think that gives us the glimpse of both paradise and what was going on with the Apostle Paul as he saw that. Yeah. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Yeah, I think that really <laughs> does. Um, yeah, even you know with Luke 23, 43, like you had mentioned, where Jesus says to the to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. So paradise 
is paradise synonymous with heaven or is paradise something where people it was like a, a holding place huh. pre Christ that people were kind of hanging out in until Jesus death and resurrection. And then he took them to heaven. Have you right. heard oh, that yeah. as well? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about Abraham's bosom, right? Uh, we talk about paradise. I mean, there's certainly a lot of terminology that's used in scripture. In fact, the, this past Sunday, and even on the radio show, we talked about the kingdom of God and how Luke calls it the kingdom of God, while Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Right. And, and are those different places? No, they were synonymous, but certainly the audience was the key there, right? The, the, the vileness of our lips, uh, Matthew, as he's writing to a Jewish audience, a Hebrew audience, he did not want anything to, to come across as a, um, a an offensive term for them because they didn't want even to speak the name of God, right? Yeah. In Luke, to a Gentile audience, he says, kingdom of God. They were synonymous. And I think the word paradise, the best that we can understand scripturally is it is a synonym for heaven. Um, he, he tells us in Luke 23, 43, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise, just as you said. Okay, that, that is not a holding place. This is the place, the garden where God is. Where he walks, that's where the Lord is. And, and so when we use then a, the other side of that, Abraham's bosom, this is where we start to go, is are there layers, right? If par- paradise is where God is and we will be with him in paradise, oh, but wait a minute, uh, is there some delay that I can't go. So this is where the, now we look at Abraham's bosom. This creates some confusion because in Luke 16, 19 to 31, we see the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And this is really the only place in scripture where that term Abraham's bosom is found. Really what you have to do is go to extra biblical sources of tradition to find out what did that mean. And if you look to the Talmud, you see that it is a synonym for heaven. It also is the place where God is. And it's the imagery there of where you see Lazarus reclining at the table, leaning on Abraham's chest, is the same imagery when John was leaning on the right. chest of yeah, Jesus. Right. It's intimacy, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a place of the heavenly banquet where we get from Psalm 23, 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So here the one who rejected the wow, Lord is now right. dwelling and seeing mm-hmm. what he has missed out on is he is in waiting for that day where he must face the Lord at the great white yeah, throne that's judgment. Great. I never really made that connection before. Yeah, I, it's Psalm a 23. powerful imagery there. And I think that's why when Abraham's bosom, well, if we understood the tradition, we'd understand why that terminology was used of right. intimacy with God, walking with God. Yeah. Right, and then you say, well, then why was the rich man able to see them? Mm-hmm. Right, it was there that kind of clarity where there was almost a, an envy, a, envy, a, a jealousy, a, a, a longing. Oh, that's what I want, and yeah. and are they then convicted by that every right. time they look up? Do they see that? I, you know, I, I think that's where we can then lead right into the segue of the other side of this equation because there's actually even more. We, we'll talk a little bit more as we look at the new heaven and new earth, but. You know, in the Hebrew scriptures, what you find is this description of this place of the dead, Sheol, right? And it simply means place of the dead. Uh, It's also place of departed souls or spirits. And the New Testament Greek equivalent to Sheol is Hades. Okay, so remember there's terminology used for the Hebrew audience. And then with the Greek, then you have different term, but the same place, Sheol and Hades, which is a general reference to the place of the dead. And Luke 16, 23 tells us that it's not a happy place. It was a place of torment. The rich man there, he was not in a place of joy. Not at all. Uh, And this is even before the lake of fire. It's a place of suffering. And I I had to ask a question, why suffering? Why even before the great white throne judgment would there be suffering in that place? And I think that it's maybe not as clear, but certainly what we can draw from scripture is this. 
whenever there is separation from God, there is suffering. God is good. Anything that's good is representation of God's presence, even in the most difficult of circumstances. He is light, according to 1 John 1, 5. So therefore, without God, there is no goodness. There is no light, right? So therefore, this Hades, this place even before the eternal judgment, is this alternative where there is no God. There is no light. There is no good. Uh, there's only suffering, right? I mean, even the, the rich man looking up and longing for the intimacy with God and not having that, yeah. that's suffering, it right? Is. So that's even before fire, there's suffering. So th- that's the seriousness of this. And, uh, and I think that could even take us into the discussion of what are some of the other aspects of that? And I, I don't want to jump ahead in your questioning either, but uh, you know, there, there's a whole section of that as we talk about the angels of judgment before the judgment, um, and even what hell is. Uh, I don't know if you want me to jump right into right, that. Well, even like you were saying with Legion, you know, right. they said that, you know, don't send us there ahead of time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that, you know, we have this, uh, there's a, a misunderstanding too, when we, we look at, uh, you know, some of, um, you know, the, the ideas of these layers of hell, right. Uh, of some sort of, imagery we i think that's been depicted for far too long of this sort of a, okay there's less suffering at the top and there's mid suffering and then there's the most severe right and some of these things you know pan's labyrinth and you know, all these various uh, depictations dante's inferno and yep. you got all these images that are often convoluting what scripture tells us but there is some interesting thing that scripture reveals here so for example as you mentioned the the disobedient the rebellious angels who we call demons, bodiless spirits that seem to just long for having a body to inhabit because their very bodies were designed to reflect the glory of the Lord. Okay, well, they don't have that anymore. So now they wander about the earth looking for vessels to take, and they are disobedient. Even still, we see the Lord with Legion, where Legion did not want to be judged before the judgment. Right. And this place that's called the abyss, where they are in a holding place before even the day of judgment— and it's also called Tartarus in the Greek. So we have this definition of this sort of holding cell for disobedient uh, angelic creatures who have fallen, these demons. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Jude 6, and this place called the pit, the abyss of Revelation 21 to 3. But I will tell you from Luke 8.30, it is not a party. It is a place of suffering even for the demons. They don't want to go there. Legion was begging yeah. to send them into the pig instead right. <laughs> of into right. this place of judgment before judgment. Um, and we see even in the book of Revelation, there'll be some released as part of God's wrath upon the earth in which they will then be bound up and, and they also right. must face the great white throne judgment. Um, so there, that's just kind of a glimpse there. But uh, did you want me to go and just talk a little bit about hell? Well, yeah, and so Sheol and the abyss, two different places. Right, yeah, and that I think that's hopefully gives some clarity there. We've got, you know, the place of the dead right. and the abyss specifically for the angelic, for right. the demons the that are in disobedience. Angels. They are there held, bound, um, and it's not that Satan rules over it. I don't even think, according to Revelation, that he's the one who's given the keys to it. Right uh, there's this, there's another that this this star this aster which is used a pronoun of he is given keys to unlock the abyss to release these upon the earth right. and then they're bound and thrown back in there and Satan is bound up and cast in by a chain tossed in for a thousand years until he's released at the end then they also must face the judgment of God just like man will as well at the great white throne judgment yeah 
Um, so it's, it, that gives some clarity. I think that also helps us understand too, because that's where some of the legend came from of this abyss, this place inside the earth, that that's where this idea of this giant dungeon at the core of the earth came about with some of the distorted views of trying to navigate what the Bible was telling them about Tartarus and this place of this holding of the, what the Greek mythology would call the Titans, mm-hmm. uh, these fallen angels that uh, were bound up by God and held there for a day of judgment or to be released on the earth in the book of Revelation. So there's some clarity, hopefully, to that. We could probably spend several broadcasts, I suspect, oh, on that. <laughs> definitely. And so with uh, with Lazarus and the rich man, one of the things that I thought was interesting is some people will say that that's the only story that Jesus tells where one of the characters is named. Mm, right. And so does that mean that that's a true story, or does that mean are oh, we still in parable form? Or Yeah, I, I well... I, everything the Lord says is true, right? Right. It's in scripture. It right. is truth. Right. Uh, God is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't think he was making up a story. Uh, I, I, even with parables, we can suspect that there were, there were real illustrations that he was using to give spiritual truth, uh, that he didn't just make that up on a whim. Right. Lord, knowing all things, he's going to tell us the truth at all times. Uh, so in this, although it's an imagery, it gives us an, an illustration of something that's happening that we can't fully understand. I don't think he made that up. Uh, I'm sure that he allowed what occurred to occur. He allowed the rich man's story to be told, um, which is interesting because he's begging for somebody to go back right. and tell his friends. <clears throat> and the capturing of that story is doing just that, telling us the seriousness of the consequences of, of the path that we're on, that there is a fork in the road. There's one or the other. And without the lifeboat of Jesus Christ, you're only headed off the waterfall into this place of condemnation. And he's giving us the life raft and he's telling over and over and over again. And even they say, well, if someone raises from the dead, they won't believe. And yet here it is, as clear as day for the world to read, the truth is revealed, and yet our hearts are still hardened. Right. Indeed, the word was true. They yeah. would not believe right. even, even with somebody the evidence. Rise from the dead. That's right. right. Yeah. So no purgatory then. No, again, these are some of the, uh, a lot of religious traditions dominate the landscape of our thinking in these areas because there's that desire that if someone is in a place, a holding place, they could be prayed out of that holding place into something else just because their ignorance dominated their train of thought. Therefore, I have to convince God that they can be removed from this place and, and brought into everlasting life. Um, and, and there are religious groups out there who will even pray for 30 days straight to save a lost soul. Um, other groups that where they continually implore individuals to pray for their dead, that there is hope after death. That's not what scripture says. It says man is to face after death to face the judgment. Right. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so we can, I think some of the imagery of scripture tries to help our finite mind understand this atemporal state, that once you're outside of the timeline constraints of time itself and the laws of entropy, you are now in the place where God is and his atemporal state, and therefore the passing of time is very difficult for us to understand outside of time. Um, And so we, we have these layer mentalities that there are people looking at some sort of eternal watch like there's a giant clock in heaven going, okay, any day now, all of this is going to happen, and yet it's future for us, past for heaven, as if the work is already done, and we just haven't caught up to it yet. Yeah, amazing concept. So this idea of waiting, I think, is, is uh, unfortunate, and it creates a lack of urgency Yeah, you know, yeah. For, for the believer and unbeliever alike. Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree. 
yeah, if you could help us just kind of discriminate be- between some of those other terms and hell, Gehenna, Lake of Fire. Mm, right. Well, and this is probably the more unpleasant part of the discussion, oh, sure. but we need to know the truth. Uh, we are told that all who are not with Christ must face the great white throne judgment. They must face the Lord and on their works alone, it will not be enough. No matter what, how much they've accomplished, no matter what a good person they may deem themselves to be, it will not be sufficient to be deemed as perfection. You must be cloaked in perfection, which is the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, who's made that propitiation for us. So all will stand before the Lord. And it's not going to be a pleasant thing, according to Revelation 20, 11 to 15. And there is a final judgment that awaits. The Greek word is Gehenna. It's used in the New Testament for hell. And it's derived from the Hebrew word hinnom. So the lake of fire is mentioned only in Revelation 19, 20, and 20, 10 through 15. It is the final hell, the place of eternal punishment for all unrepentant rebels. And that's both angelic and human alike. They all must stand before God and give an account for their life in this lake of fire. The Lord himself used this as a reference in Matthew chapter 10, Mark 9, Luke 12, And it was not a pleasant place. You can go through the Valley of Hinnom right now. They've turned it into a park. But at that time, it was a dump. It was a refuse place. It was on fire. Everything thrown into it was consumed. Uh, There there were uh, corpses thrown in there. Imagine the smell of this place. And so the Lord was giving them a very vivid imagery of saying, when you are out of the presence of God, let your mind dwell on this. This is the best imagery to try to encapsulate being in outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth. Why? Because God is light. And if God has removed himself from those in condemnation, then there is no light, right? So we we even think of fire creating illumination. Well, God is the illumination. Without God, there's no illumination. Um, So you can just see this kind of misery that comes out of this, of hell, the lake of fire, the outer darkness, all descriptions of that final destination for those who have rejected the living Lord. Right. Anybody in hell at this point or? Well, not, no. I I would think that again, in our linear continuum of our mindset, no, this is where the Hades concept and Sheol concept kind of creates some of this idea of the the soul that is awaiting judgment. Uh, Same thing with the abyss of the demonic. They're still awaiting that judgment. Now, Revelation 7 is amazing because it's a future tense for us of these who are gathered before the throne of the Lord, worshiping him, a futurist perspective of that eternal kingdom as we see it future for us, but yet past tense for heaven. (laughs) It's like he's already (laughs) revealing, here's what's going to happen. Uh, You're locked in time and entropy, but you don't know this yet. It's already done. Amazing example of God's sovereignty. Exactly. I mean, the cubicle perspective of time, Einstein gave us some of that theory, right, that you could plot throughout a cube. We're just so ruler-oriented, right? Everything is linear, beginning and end. And that's the way God made us. That's the way we make things. We make things in our image. Everything falls apart. It begins, it ends. Um, And that's what what we've come to expect. So the idea that the great white throne judgment has not occurred in our linear linear continuum, um, but in a cubicle environment where you look at life differently, as time differently, um, the atemporal nature, it can be a final work in that state. Um, and so that's why in a twinkle of an eye, you're transformed. Right. That's why Moses and Elijah were there at the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration when they shouldn't have been there, right? right. Christ hadn't yet <laughs> died on the cross. Why were right. they there? Right. It's a final work right. it, outside of the time continuum. 
Uh, that's a quantum mechanics discussion yeah, we could so have cool. for years. But, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. But I, I think that's where, when we understand the reality of this, that those names who are found in the Lamb's Book of Life, not the Book of Erga, not the Book of Works, but the Book of Life, uh, these are the ones who have not that fate before them. They face the Bema Seat of Christ. And the Lord himself will reward his faithful servants. To some, he gives five cities. To some, ten. He gives them crowns of right. life. Terrible, I mean, the talents and all Absolutely. That. Seven times the crowns are mentioned. Twelve times we have the, the blessings outlined in the book of Revelation. This is what the Bema Seat of Christ is all about, the blessing to the faithful servants. Yeah. And, and, and that's where Paul says, I want a better resurrection, right? I want to just give everything to the glory of the Lord so that I have... Everything of the treasure that does not diminish nor fades away nor perishes with this earth, I can give back to my Lord, yeah. right? I mean, just like the elders who cast their crowns back to his feet, right? Yeah, um, that's what we have to look forward to. Yeah. And the wedding feast with the Lamb. And of course, then you've got the eternal kingdom after the millennial kingdom. I mean, who wouldn't want that, <laughs> right? And you and I, before the show, we're talking about the lifeguard mentality that, uh, you know, we, I think struggle with the reality that when we are called to go into a lost world, telling them about the darkness and commending them to seek the light, encouraging them to know Jesus Christ, that that's really what it's all about. That if we can think like a lifeguard, that it's not going to be easy. When people are drowning, they're panicking. They're drowning in themselves. Their demise is before them. A lifeguard swimming to their rescue may get hurt in the process. They're going to be clawing to try to survive. They may hurt you. People are going to say bad things about you. They may hurt you. They may come against you. But when you're in the life-saving business of giving the hope of Jesus Christ, it's not an easy task. And with it comes great joy that we don't give up. Right. The lifeguard doesn't give up. He's right. going to try to do everything he can to save that person. So I encourage our listener, we're out of time today. See, see what you do, Dr. Ford. We can, we're going <laughs> to run out of time here. But I just want to thank you for listening to Engage in Truth. And if this has been an encouragement to you, if you have questions you want to send us, please reach out to us at calvaryfountain.com. And there at our website, you can find these broadcasts and more. Learn more about our ministry and come worship with us on Sundays. We have services at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. there at Calvary Fellowship. We'd love to worship with you. God bless you, my friends.